Welcome to Corn Stars, a Herpetoculture Network show with your hosts Justin Smith and Joe Phelan. This is once again another show. This <laughs> is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Uh, very excited to announce that this is the first episode of Corn Stars, which is going to be hosted by me, Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and Mr. Joe Phelan of Port City Pets. Do you say pets or pet? Pet. pet. Singular. You. you know what's weird, man? I didn't really get. I kind of was thinking of Pawn Stars. This whole time when you said corn stars, I don't know what angle you were going for, but uh, I just thought it was kind of it was punny. <laughs> it definitely uh-huh. is. I'm an idiot. And then I like with the intro and stuff that I made, everyone was like, oh, my God, you need to do like, you know, smooth jazz or something to sort of fit the thing. I'm like, I ain't trying to go too hard into that, that, that theme <laughs> like that. Is that our lane is, now? I, I hope not. I don't want it to be. It's like, it's Did you do an intro? Did I not hear? An I intro? made one. Yeah, I made one today. Uh, and I went and found a like AI voice generator. You'll you'll see. I'll have to show it to you. Is it good that other people have heard what the show I'm on sounds like before I have? Yeah. I think so. I mean, it was just our group that I sent the little like video clip of me playing it on my computer earlier. So it wasn't like clear audio. It was just, you know. Oh, I legit missed it. So super busy day. So yeah, I feel you. Uh, So yeah, this is episode one. Uh, This is not going to be a weekly show. Uh, We're planning maybe one, two episodes a month. So it's going to be me and Joe. And then I'm going to see if I can get Chris Painshab in here. So we can have some people on and like, you know, talk about certain lines and morphs and stuff like that, you know, peppered throughout. Um, but given that, you know, I've recently sort of fallen back in love with corns, at least on a serious level, uh, you know, it's like, why not? There's plenty of stuff to talk about. I don't think there's really a corn snake show around anymore. I know Donovan Winterberg had his, you know, some years ago and got the gears turning. And I was like, you know, we could do something, something simple, something like Even said, then, monthly. we're talking about four episodes or so, maybe four oh, really? episodes that I've listened to over and over again. But uh, yeah, so there's, there's no legitimate Corn Snake show that was long, long lasting, although that was a great show while it was on. Um, and I feel like I need to mention the fact, kind of bookend. Um, obviously, you guys know me from From the Ground Up, uh, a podcast that I used to have. And it's something in which I decided to kind of close the chapter on and obviously give the feed to Dominique. So we're going to post this on Dominique's feed as well as mine. If you guys aren't following her, it's the modern Medusa podcast. So get, go check out her stuff. Um, She does kind of a female focused podcast and she does it on, you know, what the feed was for from the ground up. Cause I didn't want to just stop that show and not give anyone content as well as not kind of pass the torch to someone to do something different. So I felt that my podcast was running out of pretty much like differentiation with all the other podcasts that were coming out and so many podcasts. And it's like, 
just too redundant. And I felt like Dom was taking a, the podcast in a very different direction, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. And then if you guys don't know, like between all the THP guys and me and Dom, I mean, we're all just really in a big circle of friends. So it's not anything weird like that I'm over here or anything. It's just all of our friends like to make podcasts and do content and stuff like that. So um, I would love it if first uh, the people who are on my old feed come and subscribe to the Herpeticulture podcast feed as well as uh, go the other way and check out the Modern Medusa podcast. So we can all help each other get more snake content out there. And uh, if you guys like listening to them, I mean, you guys are the ones who – you know, fuel us to keep on doing it. So. Yeah. It's uh, so like Burke and, and the NPR guys, like Burke has it set up to where each individual show has its own RSS feed. And so I'm, I'm curious to talk to him about that. But my biggest concern is that he's going to show me how it's done. And then I have to re-upload the other, you know, 200 plus episodes of THN shows to that new thing. And so if that's the case, I'm probably just going to keep it as is. Because uh, I think it would be nice to sort of be able to, if people want just snakes and stogies or just THP or just this or Chondrocast, whatever, you know, they can they can just go find those feeds itself instead of having to scroll through all the other stuff. But at the same time, I mean, people might see something, you know, we have one guest on, they see above that on another show, we had someone else on that they might be interested in. So still kind of sort of trying to navigate that. And it, there's something to be said for for both options, I guess. But yeah, the question there is, are you paying monthly for each RSS feed? But right. I mean, Which other I'm not, stuff I'm that not we doing. don't need, to, yeah. need yeah. to get into for people. Listening. That's the reason I brought the ContraCast into this RSS feed to begin with, because I was paying, you know, an, another monthly subscription just to have those episodes there, and I wasn't really adding anything to it. So I was like, why am I paying for this to just sit there when it could just sit there on the other feed? Yeah, so um, if you want us to break up the feeds, um, OnlyFans.com slash Cornstars. Nudity <laughs> is back. So go hit us up. Literally. I promise this is this is not in like adult show or anything like that. It's just, it will probably be a lot more of the opposite, to be honest, because it will be a real so. deep dive on how to keep these animals, you know, why we love them, different things in which I'm hoping that we can make kind of like an audio handbook mm -hmm. of corn snakes and whether that be history, whether that be keeping, breeding, uh, mutations, and maybe even like pricing your corn snakes, different things like that that make it into the nitty gritty. I think there's, uh, there's enough information out there about the history of the mutations Mm -hmm. But there's not an there's no one aggregating it all and putting it into an audio format so that right. people don't have to go open a book. I know our classic thing, the reptile hobby is like, go get a book, go read a book. But not everyone's willing to do that. And I understand because listening to something on audio, if I have the chance to get an audio book over a physical book, I typically do that. I mean, I think that's why I do podcasts is because that's actually what works for me. Right. Listening to audio is how I actually learn best. Um, books, I kind of read the same sentence over and over again, like a doof. So yeah, as uh, you're falling asleep just before you <laughs> drop it on your face. Yeah. So it's like, I do read books, but then again, it honestly, it's a lot easier to digest in podcasts. And I understand mm -hmm. that. So I'd like to, to kind of have a place where someone can really get the nitty gritty. And then you, you and Chris can kind of talk to the other personalities mm -hmm. in the, in the corn snake world. We just, we have so many friends that are, that are in them, you know, um, uh, me and Chris talk daily. He's in our little group. I consider Chris, you know, one of my probably best friends in the hobby. 
um, and just in life in general, because he's such a good guy. He's he's doing so much cool stuff. He knows plenty of other people in corns that are doing really cool stuff. So I'm just sort of well, I am playing catch up in corns. Like there, I've been out of the loop a really long time. Like for the last couple of years, I've kept some, but they were they were stuff that I collected from my area and raised up, you know, as younger snakes. Um, so as far as morphs and stuff go, like I, I'm so out of the loop and it's changed so much since I, I was actually keeping up with it last, which was, I don't know how many years ago. Um, so this will be good for me because I'm, I'm like I said, I'm going to be learning as I go kind of thing in terms of what's what, how stuff works, this, that, you know, this, that, and the other. And, um, I'm yeah, and I guess it. I should give kind of my history of, of corn snakes and how I got into it. So I first started keeping corn snakes in, kindergarten actually is when I got my first corn snake, brought my first corn snake in the show and tell. I was lucky enough to have my parents who were cool with the snakes. My dad in particular kept snakes. So having a corn snake was a great first pet for me as far as that goes and bringing them into school and stuff like that. Probably freaking out kids. I don't really remember, <laughs> but um, had in a little critter keeper and all that good stuff. And throughout the years, I had plenty of them. Uh, by the time I was in middle school, I got this particular corn snake named Tony. And he's one that I had the longest. He actually just passed away last year, bringing him mm. to about uh, 17 years old. Wow. Which honestly is a mediocre lifespan. I mean, it's more than most of them in captivity, but I've heard of ones that go 30 years. So uh, I always think it's, you know, what could I have done to extend that life even further? And I know that I was probably not the most attentive in the high school years when you're out doing other things and the college years as well. So uh, there's a lot of things that once I got back down into reptiles, once I got out of college and started keeping again privately by myself in my own home, I was much more attentive, really got into the different husbandry, the different mutations of corn snakes. Uh, the first one I bred, I believe, was in 2012. So I'm coming up on uh, nine years of breeding corn snakes, and I've pretty much been breeding corn snakes every year, except this one. I actually took a year off, but every year um, since then, the bulk of my production was probably uh, the 2020 season in which I produced uh, about 250 corn snakes. So, Damn. so, I mean, that's small for a lot of a lot of people out there, but for me, for one human, it was a pretty – overwhelming but i can at least say that i've been doing it long enough to know the basics of what i'm talking about or at least have resources in which to kind of uh gain all that knowledge if i don't have it myself mm -hmm. yeah it's funny you you mentioned you know your dad sort of being into it too because that's that's more or less you know a similar situation with mine is i was breeding corns with my dad back in 2000 to 2004 2003 uh so that was when I was reading, you know, Kathy loves corn steak manual cover to cover constantly. And it's funny flipping through that now and just seeing just how much things have just, it's almost exponential at how many new mutations and, and combinations there are now. It's unbelievable, but corns have always had sort of a, you know, since, since my young or older childhood, I guess, you know, being 10 to 13 ish, uh, corns have always had a, a special place for me and, there's sort of a nostalgia factor with them now and it's just, they're, they're just fun snakes. Yeah. And I think that even if people are listening to this and they're kind of the rare snake guys, the 
big Python guys, you know, even if you're coming from it from that angle, if, if you have kids, even if you don't have kids, I mean, it can be such a low maintenance, fun thing to do. And then it can get, you know, your kids into reptiles. It can get them to just kind of be more attentive about different things. I think it's a sense of, uh, I guess, responsibility that you can build with a, with a kid in which there's a, there's very little that you can severely mess up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but just enough where like they can show some responsibility and see something through all the way from, you know, brumation is kind of a weird concept mm-hmm. and bring them up from brumation, the feeding, the shedding, just paying attention to all those factors. And, and ultimately if you do it right, getting eggs and then hatching babies and then yeah. getting the baby started, it's a whole process in which isn't really difficult, but then again, uh, it would be a whole lot of fun to do it with a kid. Yeah, I need to find it. I have a stack of old pictures, and one of them is me. We So my dad, at one point in our garage, we had a separate garage at the time, a pretty decent-sized one. Um, he had built a little room in the corner, and that was like the snake room, and that's where he ran like some heaters and stuff. And, and there's a picture of me hovered over a tank just watching a feed. Like I was literally watching a female pop out eggs, and it was – I, I, I don't even know how long I sat there, but it was just the, the coolest thing at the time. And then seeing them hatching and like the smell of the vermiculite and the, I, it's, I don't know. Like I said, it just, it brings back a lot to, for me. And I mean, I completely agree on the, on the pet aspect. Uh, it's funny. Cause Matt most, I think teaches his daughter genetics because they, they both breed like he breeds black rats with her and some corn snakes and stuff to, to, show her genetics and teach her these things, which I think is awesome. Cause that's like, I mean, you don't get any better, you know, hands-on experience than, than that. Yeah. I think you can kind of say, and that's why it's, it's tough. You know, we see it in Facebook groups all the time, right? People know a lot of things in books. People know a lot of things from videos, uh, but doing it hands-on or seeing it kind of play out right in front of you, whether it be the genetics, whether it be, you know, raising a baby from a hassling to an adult, um, and then doing that on a larger scale, you learn even more. You learn the variation of each animal and how different animals can act different ways. Different animals are triggered by certain things in different ways, whether it be feeding, whether it be defensive nature. Um, mm-hmm. they're, so, they're so similar in husbandry, but so different in personality. And I see that very much in particular with corns. And I think a lot of that has to do with the ranges you find them in, how the different mutations play. I think we may downplay the, I don't know if it could, if we could say it's the lineage of the animals that are passing down the behaviors, or maybe it's where that animal was collected. Mm-hmm. So if you have a diffused corn, they could be from the Florida Keys, and they can be a little bit more round in shape. And they can be a little bit more flighty, at least in my experience. And then also, they seemingly want to feed on lizards as babies. They're a little bit harder to get to get feeding, and that's because of where they're from, what their body shape is like, you know, kind of what they're useful or used to in their environment. Even though we've been breeding them for breeding them for decades yeah. and decades, um, yeah, it really uh, you still don't get that out of the animal. You don't get that those behaviors out of the animal, whether that's genes or uh, just where they're from. Well, I guess it would be genes, anything expressed. Yeah, be almost, I won't say ancestral because I think that's a bit of a stretch, but you know, definitely that keeps that football gets, keeps getting passed, you know, down, down the line. Yeah. And then you're seeing a lot of, you're seeing a lot of the mutations 
uh, started off actually in South Carolina, North Carolina, or you have some anneries in Devil's Garden in Florida that you can find in the wild right now. So there's these animals come from, you know, range from New Jersey to the Florida Keys, and they're different colorations. Mm -hmm. They're different body shapes, which have evolved over time by whether the prey availability or what the area is like. Uh, so there's really variation within the variation uh, just because of the natural variance of the species. So that's why I find it really exciting to talk about. I find it really exciting to work with different animals and really exciting to have a group of individuals in which are different. Um, so I don't know if you've had like okatees tend to be a little bit more bitey. Yeah. Um, I mean, mine so, are, especially the, the, the babies I just recently hatched. Cause going back to the locality thing, like that's my original interest in corns, like morphs are awesome too, but my main focus is, uh, so I'm in, I'll, I'll back up a little bit, but I'm in like prime world-class corn territory. I'm in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is maybe 15, 20 minutes from Jasper County and where the old Okatee hunt club used to be way back in the day. Um, and Jasper County is famous for just those highlighter orange uh, corns, you know, some of the best in the in the world, in my opinion. I'm, I'm biased because I'm a South Carolinian born and bred, and uh, I take pride in our corns that we have here. So my thing is we have so many barrier islands down here where I live, and so you'll get different populations of corns, and there'll be little differences. And then I have some that even come from, you know, within 200 yards of each other that look completely different. Uh, and so the, I hatched out a clutch this year and it was from Ladies Island, which is the island I live on. Um, I'm literally like right on the water, like around the corner from my house, over the street, there's the marsh. Um, so it's a very, about as coastal as a, as a town can get. But like I said, tons of islands, big and small, that all sort of chain their way up the coast and stuff. And I'm in the very bottom corner, almost almost at the Georgia border. So we have some of the best looking corns in my opinion. And I uh, I can attest that the Okatees definitely seem to be pretty pretty spicy. At least the uh, the F ones that I have that I just hatched are, are pretty pretty pugnacious. <laughs> yeah, that also helps too, being a, a little bit closer to to nature as far as generations. Mm -hmm. So I think we we may take it for granted your a male that's been bred since the seventies. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, domestication's a stretch, but then again, uh, we kind of self-select for, and I know back in the day they were even uh, meticulously selecting for temperament, you know, selectively, or selectively breeding for size. For these different things that now I feel like we're just kind of breeding for coloration and then therefore, you know, it doesn't matter how it acts, what it's like. Uh, but back in the day, they were really paying attention to every single factor. Mm -hmm. So you really have some things like amels and anneries that can really come out of the egg, completely chill, eating, you know, pinkies from day one that are really amazing animals. Um, and then also you can probably get random ones from your clutch. That will be nice. Uh, that will be that one super laid back animal in which, you know, if you're going back to you know, the 1970s, you may have kept that one back. And then mm -hmm. next clutch, there's another calm one. And then you keep yep. those back. And uh, yeah, I mean, they've been selective bred every which way. And uh, they are the animal that started basically the morph craze in, in reptiles. Isn't it amazing? I mean, just with ball pythons too and corn snakes, and I guess really anything that has a morph, but like a single 
albino is kind of the the catalyst for just an absolute explosion of other things in the following decades like it's just insane that it can start with one and then through i guess more or less what i would call sort of crowdsourcing you know it just exponential like i said it just explodes into infinite combinations and colors and uh patterns well yeah because once you start looking for these differences they start kind of popping up especially mm -hmm. when you have a native species here you have so many people across the country you know and back in the day it was more you know herp clubs and stuff like that in which it was just kind of uh word of mouth in which uh, mm -hmm. someone may have gotten a postcard of a uh, price list from kathy love or maybe I, I forget exactly i'll go back and we'll have a whole thing on this uh but dr bechtel was one of the is the godfather of corn snakes he's the one who got the first albino which i believe was found in south carolina i believe he was in north carolina at the time uh don't quote me on this i'll do a fully researched episode on all of this but you know it really started with one person and then you have the next generation which be kathy love who really uh blew it up as far as you know she was sending out price lists in the mail there was color photos she made books and then you talk about the dawn of the forum era and mm -hmm. then you have kathy love still still out there and then you have don soderberg and then now i mean you have travis whistler's taking a lot of don's stuff as well as um steve roylance and there's some people that just the torch gets passed on and on and on with every generation in which gets crazier and crazier and beyond your imagination every single generation that it happens just from one enthused person to the next and it's really just one or two individuals that really fuel you mm -hmm. know this whole thing which is quite incredible obviously there's a lot of there's a, now there's probably you know 20 giant players and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that but and then you have people since the pet market is so big. I mean, you have people producing, you know, tens and thousands, you know, for the big box pet stores, because I know what we like about corn snakes is what makes them, you know, the best yeah. pet snake, at least in my opinion, for anyone. And uh, yeah, so I guess I wanted to go over a little bit of what we like about this species in particular. Mm -hmm. So if someone if someone just thinks that it's like a kid's corn snake, a starter animal, I understand where you're coming from. And we have to be frank that like that makes it the best pet snake, but it also makes it like the best pet snake for anyone. So I don't that's, see why that makes yeah. it just exclusively kid. <laughs> like it's, it's that's that's everyone. a very big part of, of why I love them so much is just the simplicity. You know, when you deal with baby Alterna and you deal with baby Chondros and you deal with other species that require, you know, more attention to detail uh, that are considerably more headache inducing, it's really nice to just have a species that you can just, you know, you can just enjoy it. Like, not that I don't enjoy the other stuff or haven't enjoyed the other stuff, but to not have to worry like, man, I love these Alterna, but I'm going to have to spend, you know, two hours on Saturday trying to get them all to eat and I got to hunt down a fence lizard or something for scenting and having to worry about that kind of stuff. Like with these, it's like, it's just, they're corn snakes. You know, it's, it's the simplicity is, is a big part of the draw, I think. Yeah. And I think that definitely starts with just in general, the size of the animal. 
I mean, you're looking at something where most individuals are from three to five feet. And then even at that three to five feet, you're looking at like a roll of quarters in mm -hmm. width. And that's something in which benefits the keeper as far as, you know, you can keep quite a few of them. You can keep them in a three foot enclosure. You can keep them in a 30 gallon tank, 40 gallon long, whatever, whatever you would like. And also it's an animal in which you can keep it in big enclosure. Uh, people have kept them in tubs forever. Um, and if you're keeping a few of them, I don't see why you would keep them that way, mm -hmm. especially because of the niche that we're talking about that they, that they inhabitate. So like or inhabit, and <laughs> I don't know how they inhabit. I'm making up my own. Inhabitate. So if you put things in the enclosure, they're going to climb. These are animals that are, you know, mostly semi-arboreal pretty much in nature as adults they are going to definitely climb less, but they're still, you could still definitely find an adult in a tree. I think it was very commonplace for kind of the old school herpers to say, put them in tubs as adults. None of these things climb. And I, I've seen so many pictures of in situ corn snakes in the wild in a tree yep. that there's just no possible. They're still a rat snake. The truth. Yes. You know, and they're, eating, they're robbing birds nests mm -hmm. all the time. That's actually a big staple of, of what they're, of what they're eating in the wild. So I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, if you have a few of them, set them up in a cool enclosure. Mine even, you know, I have the brain in which has seen so many reptile shows, probably been handled by like thousands of kids. <laughs> he's in an, now he's in an enclosure. He's in the exoskeleton from Focus Cubed where the front's glass, the sides are glass, the back's glass, and the top's glass. And So it's just like a frame. More yeah, like exoskeleton. Yeah, exactly. So... I think a lot of people associated that with stress of the animal, but this is an animal who likes to come out and like see what's mm -hmm. going on. He likes to see what I'm doing. It's a much more interactive experience than you would ever imagine that yeah. with a snake. Right. And I think that corn snakes have that personality to them. I think that that's pretty unique of the corn snake. Although I've seen, you know, other people with pythons, you know, I've had carpet pythons that come out, uh, to check out what's going on in the room when you're in the room and stuff like that. Um, so I think it kind of benefits us if you can do it that way. But also mm -hmm. if you have a hundred snakes, having one in a tub, I mean, you're feeding it, you're keeping it correctly. I, I can't scoff at that cause I do that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an entirely other, other, other conversation in itself. Um, but I, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, mine are, for the most part, pretty mellow. Of course, given that I have some some wild caught stuff that is obviously going to be a little more high strung and will probably never fully chill out and always be a little on the on the spazzy side. Um, most of my morph stuff is also just as just as mellow and enjoyable, and it's that's why I'm the reason I'm getting so hard into them again now is just because. I, I've I've never been big on morph, so I've never been a big morph guy in anything really. Um, so I've never really, I guess, gotten the the mass appeal that that they that morphs have across the board in any species. Uh, but now that I've gotten some stuff from JT and I've gotten some, I actually got a couple snakes uh, from Weisler. He was our next door neighbor at, the, at Daytona. He was the next table 
next to us, which was dangerous. Um, and we were right across from Lee Abbott, which is another double whammy of I'm going to be broke real quick. Um, but just seeing all the combinations you have now, and it's for me, it's the it's that potential of, you know, you can do whatever you want. Like you have so many options now that like if it's pattern specific that you're kind of trying to go for, you got options. If it's color specific, you got options. If it's both, you got options. And it's that that sort of fantasy of of possibility. That's why that's what's really caught my attention with it. And it's like, man, I wonder what would happen if I paired this with this. And, you know, what if I doubled that back and did something else down the line? And like, you never you just don't know. And that's maybe that's the reason I like condos a lot, too, is like that unknown factor of you have no idea what you're going to get. You know, when you get a baby, you're not going to know what it's going to look like as an adult. And no one can really tell you what it will look like as an adult. And that uh, that sort of level playing field for me is is a big, big draw. So, yeah, I think there's a level playing field <laughs> in a lot of different ways. So you're looking at probably, you know, 85% of all the color options and pattern options are within a hundred dollar range. And then you're probably talking yeah. 95% are in a, the $200 range. And then all you really have after that is scaleless and Palmetto that are going to be more expensive. And yeah, there's, there's going to be the slight exceptions and stuff like that with different combinations that get a little bit more pricey. But ultimately, you can have a world class collection in which no animals are over like five hundred bucks, mm -hmm. and that just makes it so um, palpable for anyone. In which I know when I got into a big thing about like that's not talked about enough is that when I got into corn snakes, you know, I didn't. I was twenty one years old. I didn't have any money. I didn't really have any excess money to mm -hmm. to spend on animals, and. I really built up very slowly and had, you know, two clutches, then had five clutches, then had 10 clutches, then had 20 clutches. So like this just year after year built up until I was like, you know, I could, I could house and feed and keep up with hundreds of animals and not, have it come out of my pocket as a broke 20 something. Mm -hmm. So you can, if you're patient, have that snowball into uh, a little bit of freedom with what you want to do with your collection. And really it doesn't take a big uh, investment from your uncle or anything like that. You know, will you get rich? Probably not. And I know that that's famous to say in snakes, like, you know, come in with a million dollars or the only yeah. way to make a million dollars is to start with two, um, which really isn't true for everything and a lot of things. But uh, I think it is if you're, if you're not, if you're just kind of aimlessly doing things, if you have like a, a projected plan, like you have a long-term goal with certain animals and you can like, you have that, that long, long range vision. I think then it's, that's a different story, but to just like buy random stuff and then put random stuff together and mm -hmm. expect it to fly is, you know, that's not, that's a good way to, to either break even or be in the red. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, staying focused and stuff like that, you can definitely build that snowball effect. And usually we're a little bit too into it and we kind of spend all of our money on different species and different things that we never really get in the green because mm -hmm. we're too obsessed with it. Um, but none of that matters. All I'm saying is that it's accessible to everyone. This isn't a, uh, this isn't the Sanzinia in which, I mean, like, 
it's not the Bolins. It's not the big species in which is going to uh, not only get the price tag, but is going to be more difficult and all that good stuff. And no one's going to pat you on the back for breeding corn snakes. But if that's what you're in snakes for, then uh, interesting choice. I mean, I don't really, as far as the whole, like it being a, a quote unquote kid snake, you know, I don't really necessarily think that's the case. Cause I think I know more people that are, you know, our age that are breeding corns, you know, JT's, He's been freaking killing it, mm-hmm. and it's only getting better. Like Chris, he bred a ton of corns this year. You know, he's older than both of us, and he's he's breeding them. Like I don't necessarily agree that it's the kid snake. Like, is it a good snake for kids? Absolutely, but to say that it's like just write it off as a kid snake, I think is just. And why aren't we not terribly accurate? Why aren't we kind of cheerleading those that are producing these snakes? Because we like to put on a pedestal the person who has this new morph of retic when he's producing 50 animals out of an egg that are going to get, you know, who knows? Yeah. They're going to disappear into the void as well. And I, yeah, I never see adult retics. That's weird, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, you know, why don't we say, you know, this is actually a responsible way to do this. There's a demand here because it's the best, first pet snake and i know a lot of people are going to say ball python and i don't completely I, disagree, yeah i really don't i don't whatever. i think corns are it man they're they're going to get my vote and you know, i those think are brettles pythons if people are willing to go a little bigger i think if we if they came out a yearling size i would i would say 100 the most perfect you know pet snake because they come out so small i've seen children have problems handling them and stuff like that or having <laughs> fat finger them yeah, yeah i mean you gotta be, be gentle and they're like just swatting it you know and- oh yeah and i mean that's the cool thing about like the brain and stuff i mean honestly we've had some kids even though their parents are right there they're little jerks and uh done some weird things but it's not like the snake's ever gonna react in any negative way mm-hmm. you know so that's that's really the great thing. The the temperament just seems so pliable in comparison to some animals that I've worked with as far as, you know, you may have bitey babies. Not only do they tame out over time, but they actually tame out with handling. Mm-hmm. So well, that and even the, the color shift, you know, having a kid be able to see like as it progresses, you know, over the course of a year, two years, three years, seeing it go from A to B, you know, is a really cool experience, too, I think. Yeah, so what Justin's getting at is like the ontogenetic color change that happens from the baby to adult. And corn snakes, for the most part, you're going to see a saturation. Obviously, it's going to depend on morph. Um, Things like reds are going to enhance with age. Reds and yellows typically enhance with age, with the yellows coming mostly kind of the neck area. For some animals, it even comes up into the face and throughout the body. So that's something that I find really cool that you never know you know, how much yellow the animal is going to have in it. You never know if your snow is going to mature into a more pink animal or stay about the same that it was hatched at. A lot of your anneries are going to go the opposite way. Unfortunately, they're going to kind of fade out over time. Um, I've had some projects that do the opposite, which is really interesting, which is another whole other gene that I don't think we've really teased out exactly. And basically these animals are just, going to be different from from when they're babies from when they're adults and it's just awesome to see and in a clutch you're going to see 
animals start mm -hmm. different colors and you're going to get the occasional zigzag patterned one um probably incubation spike something like that um there's even some lime bread things uh, out there as far as that that pattern goes too yeah there's definitely no shortage of choices and there's something for everyone which is the other part of it that i think is nice like if you're you want something that's more of like that nice deep oak but still has stripes then you know you have your oak tea stripes you got the tesseras which I, i'm a huge tessera fan I love the look of that that phenotype, uh, and so that's that's a big part of my focus with the morph stuff that I have currently. Um, I mean, you took the year off, so what are you are you planning to do something spring in spring? So probably not this spring because I kept back very particular pro or projects that I really picked the best of the best that I've ever bred that are unique to me. So I did breed some, some amazing honeys over the years. I bred some great Oka teas over the years, but I have a couple projects that are very uniquely mine that I don't think anyone really has a bead on. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone really knows exactly what it is. And I don't think I really know exactly what it is, <laughs> but it's really cool to me, at least for someone who's very particular about corn snakes. So I have a two-year-old animal, two yearlings, and one adult corn snake. And that's pretty much all the corn snakes I have right now. But it's one very particular project in which I'm just going to see through for fun just because I'm running out of time mm -hmm. as I get old and tired. <laughs> the bedtime gets earlier by the year. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, I guess I had to come to the – the crossroads of stop playing snakes, playing with snakes in my basement and kind of uh, figure out how to be like a fully functioning human being. So I'm still <laughs> it's overrated. Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely overrated. Yeah. I'm still, uh, you know, still the reptile guy in which is, uh, I think what I'll be for life. I think everyone yeah. sort of goes through phases in that regard. I mean, you mentioned earlier, like high school and college, you kind of had these, I won't necessarily say falling out, but a, you know, a period where it just wasn't the focus. And I certainly had that period. Um, you know, there was a point in time, I don't know if it was during college or in high school, but I, you know, I, I wasn't the greatest of keepers and wasn't really tending to my stuff the way I should have. And eventually just got rid of everything except for, I think one tarantula that I had had at the time. And, then I focused on inverts for a while before getting the cresteds and then it went back to snakes and you know, it just, it's always evolving. And I think you kind of, it's just like with life in general, you know, there's ebbs and flows to things. And, you know, I think we naturally take those sort of the, that time off from, from our main passions onto other stuff. You know, for me, I'm a musician, so I like music a lot. And so there've been times where it's like, I'm hyper-focused on drums for a little while and doing that kind of thing. And then it's like, go back to snakes. I think your brain naturally does that just to kind of take a break you know, a, a short sort of mental vacation from it to come back. Yeah. And it's really tough with snakes. Well, snakes are a little bit easier than other animals, mm -hmm. but there's really not many breaks you can take, you know, uh, things need to be tended to things need to be fed. Things need to be cleaned, And that's just what we do. So what we do is reduce our numbers. Maybe so where it's at least what I've done to where it is more of a hobby again, and mm -hmm. I can keep at a high level. I was trying to keep at a high level with 300 animals, which was super, super time consuming. That's basically a full-time job 
if you try really hard. I mean, some mm -hmm. people can do it with thousands of animals, but you maybe keep it on newspaper or something in all tubs. And I understand why you would do that, but keeping at a high level, you know, I have like all together six animals and then a rhino. Well, that's not true. I forgot. I have like six geckos too. I, I have probably 13 animals and a rhino iguana, which is like just a house cat. So <laughs> it's a, it's totally cool. <laughs> No, it is the coolest. Um, so yeah, keeping it real small with what I got going on. What do you have as far as projects? So I'm currently at, I think around 60 animals, give or take. And even that's kind of getting to the point. I mean, it's, it's, there's everything still getting taken care of, but it's definitely between the magazine, um, you know, the podcasts work. I work like 50 plus hours a week, um, which I do do a lot of magazine stuff at work because that's a, you know, something fortunately I can do while I'm there. Um, but it's still a lot of work. And so coming home, I work, you know, usually 10 to 8, 10 to 9, depending on the day. And so unfortunately, if I have to get stuff done, it's either before or after. And a lot of times it's after. And then, you know, I have a wife and child that I also have to make sure I buy a lot time to and and things like that. So it definitely gets tough. And I, I don't think I could do it with 300 animals. You know, it definitely would be a, a tough thing. Um, so I think kind of where I'm at now, I'm, I'm pretty happy with uh Definitely, as far as conjures go, I'm I'm pretty much content with what I have. I have no plans on bringing anything else in that in there. But corn wise, I mean, I got uh, honey has definitely caught my eye. That's uh, something I really want to pursue more. So I have a honey tester from JT at Silent Hill Reptiles. That's absolutely out of this world. Uh, picked up a, a honey motley at Daytona for him to pair down the road. And then I'm also very excited about. Um, but like I said, I'm a big tester guy, so I've got some other tests for stuff. I uh, got a pair from Lee Abbott of Tessera's Het Candy Cane and Honey Motley. Uh, I got a Candy Cane Tessera from Weisler at his table at Daytona. Um, I got another Annery. Uh, I think she's a Het Hypo from, from JT as well. I got a male Het Sunkissed that I hopefully will tie into some of the locality stuff. And that was originally my goal was I have my locality animals, you know, I want to tie some of that, the morph stuff into those, but also still do locality stuff. So sort of keep doing, keeping the focus on my local, my local animals. Um, but then still sort of tinkering around and seeing what, what I, you know, what, what that natural blood will do with some of the genetics and, and things like that. So that's sort of the big focus, but locality stuff, especially from my areas is the, the main drive for me currently. Uh, the morphs are more of just a sort of a, a fun little side side piece. And that's more of a new thing that you've seen in the corn hobby is taking that natural variation that I was kind of talking about in the beginning from the different ranges that they exist in the wild. Um, you're going to see different colors and putting those into the genetic mutations and seeing how those play off each other. So I had, when I was working with honeys, I really used uh, the old school stuff that derived from that derived from, at least where I got it, was Don Soderberg, and very yellow, um, had some black on it, stuff like that. And now you're seeing a lot of the Miami honey mm -hmm. crosses in which I believe uh, derived originally from Walter Smith, uh, Walter Smith Captive Creations. And that's when we started seeing like these weird sunspotty gray and yellow things, which is mm -hmm. like, what the hell? How did that happen? 
and really one of the more stunning corn snakes you could see in the hobby. And I think that that's just so creative to even think of that, even though like uh, now that it's done, you can recreate that over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. and now there's even more color options going on, right. but um, that kind of, every once in a while, something comes, uh, comes around that kind of opens a door. And I feel like yeah, that's opening yeah. a door in the, in the corn snake game. Well, it definitely seems like Sunkist is kind of, I don't know how long that's been sort of the thing, but it seems like that's the thing now. And I, I've been watching a lot of Sarah Moore's at, at Sarah's Snake Shop. She, you know, talked about Sunkist in one of her videos because she does morph deep dives, which are awesome. I highly suggest everyone go check them out. Um, and she talks about how Sunkist uh, is kind of like the curveball and things. And that really sort of mixes things up. It's sort of the genetic blender of sorts. Um which I like because it's very similar to sort of Beox and Chondros. You know, you throw Beox in the in the designer Chondro stuff, and it really, really does some. It it amplifies things a lot. It does some really funky stuff. So that sort of throwing that that wrench into those gears, I I really like the idea of that. And you know, the Cinder stuff and Peppermint, I've actually I, I really like a lot too. But uh, you know, Tessera, anything, I just I'm a sucker for. Yeah, so that was definitely one of my big focuses the whole time was definitely doing Tessera stuff. All the stuff that I was telling you about that I held back, all of it's Tessera. So it's a direction that I've always loved. I just love the pattern of it. And even that has, uh, maybe we can get into the shady past of the Tessera gene one day, but that has a whole backstory that's really, mm -hmm. really interesting and which is clouded with a whole bunch of doubt in, it, in different yeah. ways. I think that's what's fun about all this reptile stuff and probably for most hobbies, the deeper you look kind of, you can get particular little through stories and mm -hmm. it goes through particular players hands it's at the telephone same game, but on a massive level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because no one's really keeping records. It's all verbal. One guy thinks it's this, thinks it's that. And then you have different, personality is at play in which may not like each other or something like that so of course someone's gonna throw some doubt into some a lot of hearsay project. that gets turned into fact and yeah and all of a sudden where does tessera have king snake in it or not mm -hmm. and i'm not even sure i mean i don't even put it past there because i think it derives off of a forum in which some of these things end up in random people's hands that have no idea what they're looking at and then you have to play, is this something new? Is this a weird combination that someone just like, you know, at some point people were just, I don't know if you remember kind of when I first got started into doing this very seriously, we're probably talking like 2011, 2012, when Kevin McCurley was just like putting everything together. He was making bad eaters. He was making, mm -hmm. <laughs> I see all this, putting all those pythons together. And it's like, he wasn't the first one to be making different hybrids and just having fun with it. That happened all the time. And that guy wholesale to someone else. And I think that's everyone's fear when people do that. And they think that's a bad thing, but also like, damn, does that put some fun and mystery in it? Because ultimately adds to the lore. Yeah, yeah. It's not the biggest deal in the world. You have this captive snake. Oh no, I don't know what's in it. Who gives a shit? It's not really going anywhere. Don't breed it to like your trophy, you know, Lee Abbott Okatee right. or something. Okay, that's fine. But like you have something mm -hmm. that's really cool and 
we can play he said she said all day and we can kind of try to come to a conclusion on what it is but at the end of the day there's always a, a question mark there's yeah there's always going to be that little bit of of doubt you know and why are my a tiny shred it's always going to exist why do my tesseras bite each other when they breed i don't know they're probably do they really them. yeah they're uh mm. <laughs> i have some pictures of them um they yeah they they bite the neck of the females to latch on like a king snake would hmm. eh. so that's that's the type of thing that you need a lot of animals to see things like that mm -hmm. because i've bred them multiple times and over say five years those pairs and i've seen this happen two or three times which i just think is really interesting behavior especially something that doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. Well, in the context, especially if you're breeding other stuff and you're not seeing that happen either at all or nearly as much, then it's definitely, a, it stands out a little more. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, and, and then you'll, and then you'll have the old school guy who's like, my corns have never done that. And I've never had Tessera in my stuff. And then you have some other guy who's had it happen before in his collection. And then that just, I think, a lot of times we think it's like Facebook drama and stuff like that, but also people are kind of standing up for their own anecdotal experiences mm -hmm. and being like, well, this is what happens in my collection. And then something else happens in someone else's collection. And then it's like, you're wrong because this is what happens here, but you're wrong because this is what happens over here. But like, maybe you're both wrong, right? Whatever the hell, uh, this stuff isn't, a tried and true science to the fact that we haven't kept all the data. We haven't kept mm -hmm. all the records and stuff like that. And that's what that, uh, that room for error, I think is kind of fun if you don't take it too seriously. Yeah. Like just chill out. And with corn snake, it's easy to just chill out. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, that's another big part of why I like it so much is, you know, there's not super exclusive, genes and stuff that only five people have you know it's it's fairly open open source to you know just about everybody it's just a matter of how much are you willing to put into it financially and you know i like that there's there's not like i heard of this secret morph that this one person has you know that i, I don't know what it looks like but i've been told i've been you know someone described it to me and it sounds like something super unique but it'll never see the light of day you know i don't i don't see that with corns but it may exist i don't know but and then you're looking at, say, if you take, if you take the mentality of the corn snake and apply it to carpet pythons, then your hypo bred lie bred with your Darwin al albino makes an amazing looking snake. <laughs> but the carpet community will not accept it. Mm -hmm. Blasphemy. But if I you mean, do over in Australia, care. they just don't care because they got yeah. what they got. Same. I think that's maybe that's why it's, here that's with the way it is here. Yeah. Yeah. Natives. And like, we can always get more, I guess maybe it's just the availability of blood. But then again, like, let's be honest, there's pure carp, pure quotes, carbon pythons everywhere. You can find your own stuff. And who gives a shit? Guys, I'm sorry. You're not an AZA accredited facility. You're not uh, preserving anything worth preserving that's so fucked up to say but like you're you're not preserving anything worth preserving you're doing it for the hobby for a bunch of other dudes in their basements but ultimately <laughs> you're not saving the fucking world get over yourself like come on man just have fun 
See, I, I I see it from both sides. I mean, I am. No, I do too. I am more I mean, of, I guess, a purist at heart, you know, with the Bairds and stuff. They're just like, I'm not super locale purity. You know, it's like, I would like to keep some like the Loma Altas. I would like to keep Loma Altas, but I do want to mix them into some other projects down the line. But, um, you know, with corns and like, for some reason, the thought of Tesser possibly being a hybrid is like that really sort of hurts a little bit because it's like I really do love Tessers, but the thought of it possibly being a hybrid for whatever reason just really kind of irks me. Maybe it's just because I, I like that concept of it being like the one thing. And, you know, I, I don't know, but all my favorite things trace back to like a pet shop animal. Where mm-hmm. this, the buck ends completely, <laughs> and like, eh, and know. that's that's why I like the locality stuff so much. Is like I collected, I know exactly where it came from. There is no question that it is just pure South Carolina corn, you know, and that's part of the draw. And I have two point two adults. Uh, I paired one pair, and I have hopefully both females will will go, and the one female will go again, but the other female will be ready. Um, I tried pairing her kind of late in the season. I don't think I got anything from her or I didn't get anything from her, but something about that, just that. And it's such a simple thing too. You know, if I was going to sell these babies, they'd probably be like 50 bucks, whatever, you know, but to me, that's like, it's, it's a very special project because it's right here from my own backyard. And I think we're at a point now where a lot of species that we have here in our own backyard uh, are taken for granted. And I learned that even more so when we went to Texas and I saw, you know, coleonyx geckos and, um, you know, rattlers and stuff like that. It's like, this is so cool. Like, this is right. I, all I have to do is jump on a plane. And I'm there in, you know, three hours, two hours. It's just that stuff's taken for granted so much. And corns, especially, you know, everyone sort of says corns, whatever they're corns. But it's like there are people in Japan, you know, nipper in Europe in the UK, you know, he'd kill to see a corn in the wild. A lot of those people will. So it's sort of when I find these, these native species, especially corns to me, it's, it's, it's special because, you know, if you look at it from the aspect of almost as looking at it as an exotic species that someone else would from somewhere else, it, it definitely sort of makes you appreciate them a little more. Yeah. And I think that we have just as much to offer, if not more in America, especially you're talking rattlesnakes. I mean, geez, you can't, go anywhere else and find more diversity than we have here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and there's also different regions in which, you know, go herp, California, go herp, West Texas, go herp, East Texas, Louisiana area, go herp, Florida, go herp, South Carolina, all the North different Carolina in the hills. There's all different types of animals. Even if there's crossover species, they're going to look different. Um, you want to go over to Australia so bad, but you got to cover a lot more land mm-hmm. to find, honestly, to find a lot less. I, I would say, in my opinion, I mean, um, I mean, there's beautiful animals. Obviously, there's scrub pythons and the big animals that we don't have here. But give the animals here some credit. And uh, diamond pythons are cool. So is a speckled king snake. Mm-hmm. You know, so is a milk snake. I mean, there's nothing looking like a coral snake. You know, there's uh, some amazing animals here. And just the the more you dive into colubrids, I mean, you're like, holy shit, there's a western green rat snake yeah. that's in America? Yeah. Like, there's a green rat snake, man. Come on. 
Speckled, yeah, I mean, all the subox, like the different colors of subox. There's, you know, gray bands. There's just chain kings. Even the locality chain kings. There's so much variation in those alone. But to me, there's few things more sort of American in terms of colubrids than than corn snakes. You know, that's that's like me and Phil say on snakes and stogies. Like that's pure Americana. And that's yeah. that's the appeal to me. It's like especially the ones from here because it's like this is what people came down here you know, in the fifties to the Okadee hunt club for like, this was a destination at one point for the corn snakes. And that's why I love the local corn so much. And that's why I want to hopefully find more. I only collect babies, uh, or, you know, yearlings, smaller stuff. I definitely don't keep adults, but, um, it's just like being able to have that and say like, these are 100% corn snakes. There's nothing like no added preservatives, no <laughs> nothing. It's just non GMO. South Carolina corn. And what started captive reptile breeding, at least on the, in the private sector, you know, it really made it, you know, I mean, people were breeding rattlesnakes and stuff like that before, but I mean, really made our industry what it is. Mm -hmm. And, and then you're looking at leopard geckos and then eventually ball pythons and then crested geckos. These are all kind of the, building blocks that hold everything up. This is mm -hmm. kind of the kind of the uh, foundation and then also the frame and everything else that keeps the house up. The uh, all the rare stuff is just pictures on the wall compared to all yeah. these species that put all the money into the industry, put all the money into protecting people's rights through ESRC and stuff like that. Honestly, that's mostly the ball python folks, right? And the big industry, the, uh, you know, the people who serve the big box stores and do colubrids and stuff like that. Um, that's really the, the backbone of, of what we like to do. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something I'm, I'm very anxious and excited to see with as far as the local stuff too, is, you know, how will these look in, you know, 10 years, eight years, whatever, you know, as I, continue to hold back a handful and, and breed them and see what happens. You know, it's just, we've already seen it can be done with the, with the Jasper stuff and Abbott stuff and, and, uh, you know, Sherman lines, stuff like that. So me and Jake are also planning on, on finding one night or afternoon, early morning, something, uh, finding some roads out, out there in Jasper and, and cruising them and seeing what kind of cool stuff we can turn up. And I think that we can only benefit, at least from my personal experience, from new blood into, into the hobby. I mean, it doesn't have to be done in mass by any stretch of the imagination. New blood can even mean taking a Miami and putting it with, you know, a different mutation and stuff mm -hmm. that you know are from different lines. But having that variation does not hurt at all, having that deeper genetic pool because uh, I've definitely seen some effects of uh, things that have Lyme bred because we're talking recessive genes in all these. So obviously it's going to take you a couple generations to see anything. But with those recessive genes, there may be a recessive deleterious gene that's going to mm -hmm. hurt the animal. So breeding those recessive to recessive, you're going to get more of a chance of something bad happening. So being able to have that blood, being able to switch up the variation of things. Um, I believe in colubrids may even be more important than, uh, than your pythons. Cause I know you guys have been in inbreeding locality, those locality snakes mm -hmm. in which have really derived from a couple individuals. 
damn, you guys yeah. got lucky that they didn't have anything weird along along with them. But uh, and maybe it's something I I took from sort of carpets and and IJs in particular. You know, seeing guys really do the same thing that we've done with corns where they focus on certain colors, you know, be it darker or orange, more orange, lighter, more blonde, whatever. And because there's still access to wild caught pop ones to be able to tie into to things, you know, watching them sort of refine that and watch pop ones go from what was originally sort of like the trash carpet that you could get for next to nothing. It shows to now, I mean, they're, they're now they're up there in price, but it's because there's been, you know, 10 plus years of people really sort of, focusing on them or at least a couple guys the right guys you know eric burke being one of them who saw the the value in those early on i think and, and decided to to play with it more but guys like jake uh you know having access to that that fresh blood to be able to bring new life into a into a gene gene pool and stuff it's uh i think that's definitely gives them a big leg up and i think that's hopefully that that will help with corn stuff as well so and that's honestly the best the best example of inbreeding and deleterious genes having that that granite project i mean right that's recessive i believe so so you had one recessive in that situation in which you really every generation you need to outbreed it Mm -hmm. and i don't know why that is maybe like travis wyman could tell you a little bit more about why that's happening i don't know if there's a hitchhiker of some sort that we somehow can't you would think that would tease out over time um but maybe we just haven't done enough uh and someone who did that in corn snakes was kathy love so you had the the sun kissed mm-hmm. which you know you were talking about earlier which nowadays you don't really associate it with anything bad it's just a great gene in which makes everything better which is right. it's funny i think that's why maybe the juice was worth the squeezes because it does make everything better but originally that was connected with a stargazer gene mm-hmm. which i believe was also recessive and then, therefore, you had to basically breed it out. So you're taking that visual sun kiss to a normal, blah, blah, blah. It's half taking twice as long to minute. refine. and yeah. So it's taking years and years and years, but she did the hard work in order to allow us to enjoy them today, which I think is both really cool, very painstaking, and uh, there's probably a lot of a lot of animals honestly have bad outcomes in the route to doing that. So it kind of takes mm-hmm. some balls to do that and takes a hell of a lot of patience and a that's lot some, of guts. Yeah. That's something I, I wonder about a lot too is, you know, is there a glass ceiling with a lot of this stuff? Like at some point, are we going to just hit a dead end where it's like, we, we can't get any, everything, nothing comes out of the egg. Like we've hit a point now where it's like literally nothing hatches. They've just, they've, they've become infertile or whatever they, you know, that it just doesn't work. And I wonder about that, especially with, you know, a lot of the carpet pythons and stuff too. It's like, at what point are we just going to hit a dead end? Um, I mean, fortunately with corns, that probably won't be the case because we have the ability to tie in, uh, you know, fresh blood, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting. Isn't that part of the fun? We've only been captive breeding. Like I said, the corn snakes yeah. started all, and uh, it's only really in the second half of the last century. And here we are, you know, we're not even 50 years into this thing, and we're already mm-hmm. seeing some weird things happening. We have viruses, mutations, bad, indifferent, different uh, things going on, all different colors. So where the hell does this end up? We're, we're, uh, I don't know if we'll find out in our lifetime. 
I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> you sound like things. <laughs> you're like the the end is near. I don't much, especially with with balls and stuff, man. It's it's. I mean, I'm I'm very I'm even more out of the loop with ball python stuff, but I can only imagine how much stuff is is just folded over itself year after year. Just you know, what happens, you know. But I think there's always going to be a responsible person that could kind of bring that back. And all it takes is one person to give a shit to make a real big impact in this hobby. And I think that's the beautiful thing about it is that there's going to be the one Kathy Love who breeds out the sound kiss. There's going to be the one, you know, Nick Mutton that tries to get this and that and try to keep things right. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm more hopeful than that because there's always options. Um, mm -hmm. the Australian stuff, you're running out of legal options, but that doesn't stop you guys. Either, <laughs> does it? No comment. <laughs> before, should we stop before we get to a really dark place? Yeah. <laughs> we need, <laughs> we're we're taking a turn down the wrong street in the wrong neighborhood, buddy. <laughs> we need a, a brighter note to end it off on. Yeah. I'm excited. I, like I said, man, I, I love the group that I have currently. I'm, I'm anxious to, breed more this coming spring as far as my locality stuff and you know hopefully expand more on some of the other morph stuff i have definitely more honey related things i love candy canes that's also one of my favorite favorite morphs um that was one as a kid for whatever reason that was like it seemed like that was the thing at the time and then now i go and look and it doesn't seem like there's there's nearly as much of them as there used to be but fortunately weisler had had some really killer ones at his table at Daytona, so I ended up going home with a male. But, Why do you think that is, Justin? I don't know. It, maybe is it's just it, not, a, it's it not sexy enough. I think it's very sexy. I think people have always liked it. I think that that's an animal in which has been lime bred. Probably, yeah. So what does that say? I don't know. I don't think it lost popularity. I think we lost supply. Maybe. But hey. I don't know, man. I, I mean, it's Weisler had a good bit at his table, so hopefully, yeah. It's I mean, I still when I go on Morph Market, I still see a, you know a handful here and there, but they were all because, over the place. And then, like, uh, okay, I swear, like five years ago, I couldn't find any at all. Um, and you would see the occasional one, and like you're talking about an animal that was one of the more popular morphs. Mm -hmm. So. I think at least what I've seen in my collection that um, varying the bloodlines is super important. That's all. So where did what happened? What do you think happened with the candy canes? I don't know. I don't know. Cause uh, it didn't happen in my collection. So I would just be guessing and being a dickhead. <laughs> so, sorry. I was keeping it clean. At least you're honest. Podcast, but yeah, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I would, just I don't know. I mean, if there's some sort of backstory, I'm I'm unaware of it. So, no. Okay. Did we we went dark again, man. I I didn't I didn't know it. <laughs> I just love candy canes, man. I was like, I came back and started looking for them, and I was like, where'd they all go? And there's only like you know three available on Morph Market at a time. You know, it's, yeah. So. And that's, I just assume people just weren't into them as much as they used to be or something. Like it was just one of those things where people were like, yeah, there was the age of the candy cane. And then we found, you know, 
whatever senders, you know, et cetera. The people just moved on to other things. But I mean, you have things like, I mean, Ogatee's a classic, always be a classic. We'll mm-hmm. seemingly always be around. So I like it. Yeah, man. I had fun. Our first, uh, yeah. corn star. we're, we're corn stars now. That's right. Yeah, so you will be able to find this show anywhere podcasts are found. So if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, you can find it on Spotify. You can find it on iTunes, Google. Uh, It somehow pops up on other podcast platforms that I didn't put there. I don't know if it's some, like, hacker in Pakistan or something throwing them up there. But, uh, yeah, you can find it at the Herpeticulture Network if you just Google that, search that, whatever. Um, And if you have a particular platform that you like to use for podcasts, we will be there. So uh, share with your corn friends. That's right. We can all be corn stars. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know when we're going to do the next episode. We'll have to talk about that and I'm going to have to talk to Chris and we'll have to figure something out, but this was good, man. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's been a while since I've, it has. Stuff. It's like riding a bike though. I tried I tried to do a real quick like overview of what's going on with Dom and man was I not only rusty, rusty. oh so flat I was just coming out real flat I was like so lately I've just been talking to a lot of people whether it be on the phone or through text and stuff like that and kind of getting my chops up mm-hmm. in a way of just cuz man I wasn't communicating with anyone that wasn't like once a week with someone face to face so really fell out of just communication skills with human beings. You're like you were like uh, Tom Hanks in the Castaway Man. It's just you and Wilson. <laughs> you and your your rhino iguana. Yeah, I did I did my own root canal <laughs> over the pandemic. I would not be surprised. <laughs> it's been a tough time. Let me know if there's any feedback or anything from this mic. Um, no, it's good. Just how it sounds. Um, I'm just a little worried about that. It's a little road mic, a little lapel. I hope mm-hmm. it works. If not, I can get a mic eventually. But uh, at least for the time being, I wanted to sound a little bit better than, than the computer yeah, mic. I know. It sounds good. Hell yeah. All right. Well, we will make episode two happen soon. Hope everyone Oh, is this it. still the podcast? Yes. Oh, man. I guess. I remember no. I used to do these with my show where it just trailed off at the end. Yep. Yep. You know. All right. Everyone have a good evening. Later.